This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, it's Ben here with a couple of new quick announcements. We have a new Twitter handle that's probably more in line with the current direction of the show. It's at Kickass News Pod instead of the previous name at KA Politics. If you're already following us on Twitter, you don't need to refollow us or change a thing. It'll just update our name in your Twitter feed. So don't be alarmed when you see at Kickass News Pod. It's just me. Also, we're in the midst of raising our production budget for 2017, so if you enjoy the show, I really hope you'll consider showing your support by making a donation to GoFundMe.com slash KickAssNews. And even if you can't do that, another way you can support the podcast is by patronizing some of our great sponsors. Be sure to use the links and promo codes mentioned in our advertisements or get them from our sponsor page because that lets our advertisers know that you're a Kickass News listener. And it also gets you in on some great offers and big-time discounts just for fans of the show. Finally, if you have a moment, please take our listener survey at podsurvey.com slash kick. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass News. Folks, it's no secret that I'm a fan of innovative startups and the sharing economy, just as much as I'm not a fan of the kind of short-sighted bureaucrats and bloated labor unions that have tried to scuttle companies like Uber, Lyft, and Airbnb. In fact, those topics were the subject of my very first podcast over two years ago. I've still yet to stay in an Airbnb, but I'm a fan of the company and how they've created an additional source of income for people strapped for cash with a spare couch to rent out. And of course, it's no secret that I'm a self-proclaimed Uber addict. Ever since I made the decision to give up my car and Uber everywhere over a year ago. And believe it or not, I haven't missed driving one bit. So I just had to have Bloomberg tech editor Brad Stone on the show to talk about his fascinating new bestseller that gives an insider's account of the rise of Airbnb and Uber with unprecedented access to the senior execs and founders of both companies, as well as some of the rivals and regulators they've done battle with. The book is called The Upstarts, How Uber, Airbnb, and the killer companies of the new Silicon Valley are changing the world. Brad is a senior executive editor for technology at Bloomberg News, where he oversees a team of 50 reporters and editors that cover high-tech companies, startups, and internet trends around the world. Brad also co-hosts a weekly Bloomberg podcast called Decrypted and contributes to the daily email newsletter Fully Charged. He's the author of three books, including Gearheads, The Turbulent Rise of Robotic Sports, the New York Times bestseller, The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon, which won the Financial Times Goldman Sachs Business Book of the Year Award, and his latest book, The Upstarts, How Uber, Airbnb, and the Killer Companies of the New Silicon Valley Are Changing the World. Today he'll discuss how both companies got their starts, including how a James Bond movie inspired Uber, and how a wily illegal hotelier almost wrecked Airbnb's plans for New York City. We'll talk about the rideshare wars between Uber and Lyft, Uber's efforts to muscle in on the Chinese market, and the decision by Uber's famously combative CEO to resign from President Trump's Business Advisory Council. We'll also discuss some of the rivals to Uber and Airbnb that didn't take off and what makes the difference between the successful startups and the failures. We'll talk about Amazon's latest experiments with blimps, drones, and cashless convenience stores and why it's good to be a cockroach in Silicon Valley. Coming up with Bloomberg Tech Editor Brad Stone in just a moment. To 
Today I'm talking with Brad Stone. He's Senior Executive Editor for Technology at Bloomberg News, and he's the author of a new book called The Upstarts, How Uber, Airbnb, and the Killer Companies of the New Silicon Valley Are Changing the World. Brad, thanks for sitting down with me. Hi, Ben. Thank you. Um, first of all, you know, I really enjoyed the book, and I wonder, why did you want to profile these two companies, Uber and Airbnb, together rather than separately? Yeah, it's an interesting question and one I, I revisited throughout the process. You know, I started thinking that I wanted to I wanted to create a kind of mosaic of the new Silicon Valley, that there were going to be a lot of pieces to it. Um, I had an idea to add a profile of a venture capital firm. You know, I was looking at other startups. And I started this project in 2014. And two things happened. In, over the last two and a half years. One, Uber and Airbnb took off. I yeah. mean, the amount of money they raised, the valuations of each company, and the controversy and chaos that they <laughs> that they laid down in their path was remarkable. So, you know, one by one, I kind of pared back the other parts of the story because these two elements were so good. And I also felt like, you know, they really complemented each other. I, I was sort of worried that w- could, could they be kind of two parallel stories, and I was just ricocheting between them. But as maybe we'll talk about, they, you know, they mirror each other. The two CEOs are friends. They learned a lot from each other. And, you know, in some ways, they represent a new kind of CEO, much different than the kind of geeky introvert of the past. I'm curious, when you approached these two companies, did either of them say, well, you know, why don't you just do a book about us? You know, was it hard to sell them on sharing the page space with another popular startup? Neither of them were very excited about the concept, I have to say. <laughs> and I should and I should also say that, you know, subsequent to my starting the project, other authors have come around to I'm do sure. the singular take on one company. I had just come off from writing The Everything Store, a book about Amazon. Amazon was a 20-year-old company, public a public company for for uh, you know, 15 years, um, had really kind of ch- changed the culture, changed people's buying habits. And so I was thinking in terms of commensurate impact, I don't think you can compare an Uber or an Airbnb to an Amazon. They're younger, right. there's less story. So I felt like, you know, matching them together, you almost got one Amazon. Um, you start the book, in fact, with both of the key players from these two companies at the 2009 inauguration of Barack Obama. That was an interesting moment in tech. The economy overall was extremely volatile. Um, Coming out of the housing crisis, Silicon Valley was still recovering from the internet bubble. Um, Set the scene for us a little bit by talking about that particular environment in 2008, 2009, in which these companies were born. Yeah, it's a it's a remarkable moment, and of course, it's not that long ago. You know, yeah, it's one presidential administration ago, right? But there was no such thing as Uber or ride sharing or Airbnb and home sharing. Yeah, the you know the the economy was uh, in the dumps, uh, but there was a lot of optimism about a new president. And in Silicon Valley, there was I was really little, very little going on. It was a quiet moment. Really? Venture capital spending was way down. Facebook was building momentum. It was kind of the big story. Um, But, you know, this is, you know, at the very dawn of smartphones. So another Mm -hmm. key uh, year to remember is that in 2007, Steve Jobs announces the iPhone, but not until 2008 does he introduce the App Store. And we can all remember how bad (laughs) AT&T's cellular coverage was in those first few years. So it was an interesting tool with a lot of hype. But it wasn't a platform yet. And uh, the founders of a very sad-looking website called airbedandbreakfast.com, <laughs> these three guys, Brian Chesky, Joe Gebbia, and Nate Blachersik, are trying to drum up some attention for this thing. They have been working on it for a year. N- you know, very few customers, no attention, sort of really, you know, <laughs> kind of endearing how much they struggled. They go to the inauguration to try to kind of drum up support. And and they're, pa- they're passing out flyers at the metro station. <laughs> um, and... Just coincidentally, the two founders of Uber, 
which was not a company yet at the time. It was an right. idea by Garrett Camp, uh, really the technically the founder of Uber, and his friend Travis Kalanick, uh, who was a, an entrepreneur first in L.A. and then uh, had moved to San Francisco. Um, they go, uh, not for a business reason, but really for the festivities uh, and to witness history. And so they're kicking around anonymously in the crowd that day, too. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, a, it's a, an amazing time. The Airbnb guys are staying in an Airbnb and breakfast rental, but the house is in foreclosure, you know, so uh, the Uber guys are there and they can't, they end up jogging two miles to the inauguration because there are no taxis uh, and the metros are jammed. So, you know, lots, lots of irony in that point. And, you know, to me, a framing mechanism, because I, I of course, end with the inauguration of Donald Trump. And, you know, really, we've seen all this history in just the short span of eight years. Yeah. And it's interesting that you bring up the iPhone and how integral that was to the success of these companies early on. I mean, I don't know about Airbnb, but I can't imagine that there would be an Uber if there hadn't been an iPhone or at least smartphones. Well, in fact, I mean, as I I talk about in the book, there were businesses that tried Uber pre-Uber. And, uh, you know, there, there was one called Seamless Wheels that just used the internet. And then there was Taxi Magic and Cabulous. And, they, and we can talk about what those companies didn't have. But one of the things was they tried to work on Blackberries. You know, they tried to work on flip phones. Yeah. And not only were these poor experiences, but, you know, the GP, you, you need good GPS. And yeah. that wouldn't really arrive until really starting 2011, 2012. Yeah, and you say that Garrett Camp was inspired to create Uber by the James Bond movie Casino Royale, huh? Yeah, that was like a great moment when he told me that because he had never he had never said that, and he really? had been interviewed plenty of times, <laughs> and I'm I was stunned, and he was like, yeah, go back and look at that, look at the movie. There is a product placement uh, by Sony Ericsson, you know, a company that no longer really exists. And uh, and you'll you'll see that the seeds of the idea were there. And I, of course, I went back and looked at the movie. And sure enough, there he is, uh, James Bond, driving his I don't know I think BMW. He pops up his Sony Ericsson phone. It's this you know corporate moment that we might have just dismissed <laughs> back in the day of like okay shameless shameless right exactly. And yet what what was shown on the screen was Bond's car moving on this island toward its destination. And that was the little. That was a little spark of creativity that Gare Camp needed. He, he's this Canadian entrepreneur, um, sort of restless mind, who didn't, as it happened, lived in San Francisco, didn't like to drive, and was sort of irresponsible, so would call cabs and be late. And, you know, and he had sort of burned through all the terrible San Francisco taxi companies at the time. And he saw, sees this, and he's like, you know, what, this is now a year later after the movie came out. With the iPhone, with the beginning of this smartphone revolution, we can actually create this. And that's how he started down the path. Yeah, I think that you said that he got frustrated with cab companies, so he would just call them all and wait for the first to arrive. And then eventually they banned him. And his girlfriend was complaining that it was really incredibly difficult to actually get together with them and have dates and all that with his transportation issues. It's funny that the creation <laughs> of Uber, the $69 billion company, is is really the combination of Garrett Camp's crazy personality and the San Francisco taxi situation and how bad it was at the time. And we don't need to bore listeners with that, but it it did sort of mimic what was happening in other cities, which is that the taxi industry wasn't serving people all that well, particularly people not in the downtown areas. And that was, you know, so there was a need for an alternative. And going back to the James Bond idea, I wonder, might Uber's move to autonomous vehicles be the ultimate realization of Garrett Camp's dream? <laughs> you know, I don't know that he back then had, you know, we even had the imagination that this was around the corner. I mean, yeah. of course. But I think in Casino Royale, isn't it an autonomous vehicle that he summons? Maybe later in the movie he okay. does. I can't remember. I know in that particular scene he's definitely driving. Okay. I don't know. Are they going to take Bond? But it, but it does behind come to him. Okay. Yeah. That. Yeah. That's not that sexy. I guess. Well, Kit. Remember, <laughs> Kit did that Night Rider. All right. So the yeah. Yeah. Was around. Yeah. Well, it, it took some time for Travis Kalanick to commit to Uber. At one point, didn't he flirt with uh, creating an app similar to Airbnb? That that's funny because he so he had sold his previous company uh, to Akamai, a big internet company. And so he was for the first time in his life had some money and was kicking around mentoring startups and coming up with his own ideas. And there was one 
that that Garrett and Travis told me about called Pad Pass, which was very much <laughs> like Airbnb. So another historical irony there. But when when Garrett talked to him about Uber, and really this is for the first two years of the company gestating and and in its earliest kind of months as a as a real company, Travis didn't think it was all that big of an idea. And and for context, you know where Uber started, it, it was a small idea at the time. It was black cars and limos. So uh, you know right. no such thing as UberX. It was just in San Francisco at the time and. And it was expensive, so it seemed like a kind of, you know, n- night nightlife frivolity yeah. for the well-heeled, not something that could ever really disrupt the transportation industry. What was the turning point when Uber broke out of the town car model and got into the ride-sharing business? Yeah, well, a couple of things happened. One, to change Travis's mind, one was the city of San Francisco immediately served him with a cease and desist. And so he saw <laughs> it was going to be a fight, and, and he loves a fight. He's very combative mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, and for the first time saw the opportunity. So you know, Travis takes over as CEO. Uber grows very quickly, but as a black car company. Mm-hmm. And really not, not breaking laws, maybe taking advantage of ambiguity in city laws to launch. And they had fights in places like D.C. and Chicago. And but they're growing very well. They're raising uh, money. People knew them as Uber, a black car service. And then to answer your question, it is 2012 when surprisingly it's again it's not Uber and it's not Travis. It is Lyft, a company that most people know well, and right. Sidecar, uh, two San Francisco startups who kind of copy Uber, but with the idea of not black cars, not professional taxis, but anybody. Driving their car as long as it's not a, a beater, uh, you know, and they have a driver's license, they can pick people up. And Travis at Uber, you know, thought this was illegal and that the state of California should shut it down. <laughs> and for the first couple of months, he lobbied the PUC in California to shut it down. When that didn't happen, he said, "Well, this is a regulatory disruption." And Uber copied Lyft and introduced Uber X, which is, you know, what we know today. It's a massive part of their business. Uber had a chance to apparently to buy Lyft at one point. Why did Travis Kalanick pass on that? And is it looking at this point, 2017, like that was a good bet or a bad bet oh, for Uber? Oh, that's a good question. Well, you know, they, they butted heads and still butt heads. It is fiercely competitive. They steal each other's drivers. They compete on fares. They churn <laughs> through venture capital. They compete for investors. You know, Travis is, as I said, you know, is a fighter. Uh, and, and, you know, and I think Lyft probably thinks that maybe he stole some of their idealistic thunder in like borrowing some of their language around replacing car ownership and reducing traffic. So, mm-hmm. uh, and yet, um, you know, this is a, a business where they're kind of bleeding each other dry, and it might make sense to combine the entities. And so in the book, I, I recount how in early 2014, they went to dinner with their investors. But, you know, pride and, and you know, <laughs> negotiations and, you know, Lyft wants a larger percentage of Uber for its own shareholders in this combined entity. They never get anywhere close to a deal. They go their mm-hmm. separate ways. Um, you know, was it, we still don't know. I mean, I think that probably, you know, it was a good move for Uber not to, you know, give Lyft 20% uh, of a combined entity. Um, it certainly continues to dominate in the marketplace. But Lyft remains a troubling, you know, its presence remains troubling for Uber because it has raised a lot of money. It can, you know, it's focused on the U.S. And it can sort of bleed Uber dry in these fair wars. You know, Uber needs yeah. profitability here to go and compete in India and China, uh, which of course it left recently. And because Lyft is an aggressive player, it can't it can't do as, as good of a job. Does Lyft have the war chest to be able to compete on that level in the fair wars long term? I think in a targeted way. You know, hmm. they're not, you know, I don't know that they're in uh, suburban Cleveland or, right. you know, Louisville in the same way that Uber is, but in San Francisco and in I think in LA um, and in other yeah. big cities, Lyft is an aggressor and it's competing on fares, and U- so Uber has to compete on fares, and so it's a kind of thorn in it, in its side. I've noticed that Uber spends a lot more money on advertising to potential drivers than they do to guests or users. Is that part of their mo to just push Lyft out of the marketplace just in terms of uh, available drivers? Well, there's certainly a battle for the hearts and minds of drivers, and 
you know, there's a case to be made that Lyft has maybe done a better job. Really? Um, the brand is more appealing to a lot of drivers I talk to. Lyft mm. allows tips uh, on the app, right, which Uber does right, not. Right. Uh, that, that is a, a fr- frustration point for Uber drivers. And yet Uber can make the claim that, you know, tips were an awkward and time-consuming part of the taxi experience. And they want to be, be rider-focused. So it's funny. I mean, Uber has declared 2017 to be the year of the driver for them. Mm. So you make a good point, which is this is a, a battle on both sides of the marketplace. And Uber and Lyft are kind of competing hard for drivers. And, you know, I don't think Uber's necessarily pulled away on that one. You know, there's lots of, mm. there, there, in, in New York, we see startups like Juno, which is offering equity to drivers. And drivers love that. And yeah, you know, they're, they're waiting. They're waiting for Juno yeah. to launch outside New York. Yeah. And another interesting tidbit that came out in here was the backstory behind the surge pricing. Now, most people assume that that's just Uber being greedy and trying to gouge customers. But that also basically came down to just the availability of drivers. Right. And this is where the kind of character of Travis is really important because people hated search pricing. No one was used to the idea, you know, that suddenly it's raining, you will pay more for your taxi, right? It just, it seemed like price gouging. And the people that complained on Twitter every New Year's Eve, you know, it was deafening. And a lot of brands would have said, this is hurting us. And in fact, it did hurt Uber. I think one of the Mm -hmm. reasons why people feel ambivalent towards Uber, and we can talk about some of the trouble they've gotten into, you know, it's because Travis just stuck to his guns. And the principle was, you know, there's a reason why we can't get a taxi on Friday or Saturday night uh, or when it rains or, you know, or in certain areas um, of a city. And it's because, you know, drivers don't find it economically beneficial. Mm -hmm. They don't want drunk people at nights, you know, throwing up in their back seats, so they go home. And the idea of surge pricing, you know, is that you create a, you know, dynamic, you know, economic market and you make it worth their while. And he saw in the data, he didn't come up with this. It was shown to him by underlings. And I talk about that in the book. Um, He saw experiments where that played out. And so throughout all this criticism, he kind of stubbornly stuck to his guns. Now, he didn't handle it all that well. Like I talk in the book about how he would, you know, basically go and criticize customers when they criticized him on Twitter. That's maybe not the smartest uh, strategy. Yeah. Well, before we get into Uber's PR wars here, um, let's talk a little about the beginnings of Airbnb and their kind of bumpy rise to success. One of the initial mistakes that they made was Airbnb chose to fight regulation in New York City by not making users aware of the law with the hopes that they would then advocate on Airbnb's behalf. How much did that impact their image of Airbnb as a community and kind of this hippy-dippy, touchy-feely, nice exactly. <laughs> nice company? Right. The, and that's one of the themes of the book, you know, that Airbnb has maybe a softer image than Uber, but it needed to be every bit as ruthless as, mm-hmm. as Uber did. Now, you know, New York is a funny market because Air, immediately Airbnb's largest market in the U.S. And yet almost from the get-go, it was illegal. Airbnb right. was basically illegal by the letter of, the, of a state law that was really targeting illegal hoteliers, massive operations that were deceiving tourists. And, you know, and I'm sure Airbnb thought that was a, a bad law and an old law, you know, that it was... It was too too uh, restrictive. In fact, their earliest lobbyists got some promises that, like, you know, this is this is not meant for you guys, and uh, and so yeah, they continued to expand. They, you know, when we say they didn't tell their customers, I mean, it was maybe buried there in the user, you know, page twenty nine of the user agreement, but it was not, you know, the banner yeah. that you see today, which is check with your landlord, check your city law, right, and as a result. People got in trouble. They got evicted. Um, there, I, I tell the stories of, of people who had legal problems because, unbeknownst to them, their you know periodic renting of their apartment on Airbnb was against the law. Now, it, now to the second point, which is you know were they? Yeah, I think were they trying to like create a political coalition to go fight this, mimicking kind of what Uber had done. R- right. I mean, yeah, Uber had had a, a lot of success emailing customers and getting them to email city council people in, mm-hmm. in places like DC. I don't know that that was Airbnb's strategy right off the bat. I think they figured they could kind of fly under the radar, but then something happened in about 2013, 2014. Airbnb. It's, it's no secret anymore. The valuation is suddenly larger than a lot of hotel companies. 
And the hotels and the hotel unions start to stir up a fuss. There are also, you know, legislators, lawmakers uh, who realize that this is, a, you know, that's, that neighborhoods are starting to agitate. Like, we don't, they don't necessarily want, you know, flocks of tourists coming in and out of apartment buildings at 2 a.m. Yeah. And, you know, and so, so that's when Airbnb kind of pulls up the playbook and says, okay, can we create a political block and we see these fights in every city around mm-hmm. the country right now where, you know, they're, they're advertising the good Airbnb, elderly people renting out their home to make ends meet. And then their opponents are, are criticizing the bad Airbnb, <laughs> which is, you know, somebody yeah. moving out of their home and instead of listing it. We're going to take a quick break and then I'll be back with more with Brad Stone when we come back in just a moment. So it's a new year now, and there's no better time to launch an online business or expand your online presence for your existing business, and GoDaddy.com wants to help. GoDaddy's mission is to radically shift the global economy toward life-fulfilling independent ventures, helping their customers kick ass by giving them the tools, insights, and the people to transform their ideas and personal initiatives into success. GoDaddy is the world's largest technology provider dedicated to small business and the largest domain registrar with over 62 million domain names under management and big savings over other registrars. Their award-winning 24-7 support will help build your online business and give you everything you need to get up and running. Whether you have a new idea or an established business, the key to success online starts with a great domain name, and GoDaddy is trusted by 13 million customers. That's more than any other registrar. And right now, my listeners can get a special discount on a GoDaddy domain if you just use my offer code KICK30 at checkout to get 30% off new purchases. That's GoDaddy.com and offer code KICK30 for 30% off. You don't have to spend a fortune on a domain. Just go to GoDaddy.com and type in the offer code KICK30 at checkout for 30% off and launch your online business today. And now, back to the podcast. One of the interesting side stories in this book is, I guess, the guy who might be called kind of the public enemy number one of illegal hoteliers, this guy named Toshi Chan, who kind of became an albatross around Airbnb's neck as they tried to get regulatory approval in New York City. What kind of problems did Toshi and his so-called Hotel Toshi create for Airbnb? <laughs> right. I love this story um, because it is ex- wild New York-style excess. Um, <laughs> this is like a this is a former Wall Street guy, an actor. Uh, he was in the movie The, the Departed, um, <laughs> a party planner. He threw wild parties, and he got into Airbnb in New York in the very earliest days. Um, and, and he just went wild. Like he, he would, (laughs) it was during the recession still. And so he would, he would, he would scoop up a lot of available rooms and buildings and, and kind of weave them together in this virtual hotel he called the Hotel Toshi. (laughs) And it was chaos. You know, they, they were like, you know, there were parties everywhere, complaints pouring into, you know, into, (laughs) into landlord's offices. Um, Toshi himself paid off two blackmailers <laughs> uh, who threatened to report him to the city. And yeah, he, he used other online services, but uh, but a big part of it was Airbnb. And you're right, he became associated with what I just referred to, the bad Airbnb. Yeah, It's not a community. It's not making ends meet. It's not, you know, meeting people with these magical experiences. <laughs> as you, and that does happen. But the other the other side is the Hotel Toshi, and it's basically like this is just a guy who was, you know, hacking the system. Yeah. And eventually he got shut down by the city and paid a huge fine, and now he owns the Flatiron Hotel in uh, Lower Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, he's a legitimate hotel <laughs> he here is, now. He is. And he has a great sense of humor and, well, yeah. and, and also probably a little bit of pride about <laughs> the stunt he pulled. But at, at one point, you know, He's like got dozens of buildings across Brooklyn and New York and and again, you know, like hiding out, fearing for his life because he knew what he was doing was massively illegal. <laughs> well, Airbnb certainly had a lot of hiccups along the way. Um, it certainly seems that they had a bumpier ride than Uber. Uber was catering to an obvious and immediate need, whereas Airbnb, they pretty much had to 
pitch and sell everyone from host to guest, regulators, investors on this crazy idea that strangers would want to stay with other strangers. But eventually they landed their first significant investor because he said they were, quote unquote, cockroaches. What did he mean by that? Right. That sounds like a negative thing. But actually, you would think, yeah. in, in Silicon Valley, it was a compliment. The, this was Paul Graham. He's the head of, he was the head of the famous startup school called Y Combinator. And this is a year into Airbnb's existence. It's still called Airbed and Breakfast. They have been rejected <laughs> up and down the San Francisco Peninsula. Uh, one, one, one investor literally walked out on Brian Chesky and Joe Gebbia, the founders, in the middle of coffee. Like he left his coffee there on the table because he thought it was such a ridiculous idea. And look, <laughs> I mean, for a certain, you know, a certain demographic, and I would count myself uh, among that, it does seem like a strange idea. Uh, at the, and certainly did at the time, uh, but uh, Airbnb got into Y Combinator, and uh, and and um, Paul Graham was skeptical. He's an older he's he's an older guy. He's in his fifties, and he's like, you know, why would anybody want to do this? It sounds horrifically uncomfortable. And won't people die in these houses? And what do you do then? And um, you know, what if they steal stuff? And of course, all those concerns came true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really, the business wasn't even particularly successful then. As I said, they you know they had a lot of problems and restarted and restarted the company several times. But they had they had they refused to give up. They had yeah. survived this apocalyptic winter and were still going. And so he said, "You guys are like cockroaches. You still won't. You just won't die." And he identified something that's I think important for anyone who's listening who's trying to build a business right now, which is you kind of need a stubborn resiliency, a, yeah. a just say no, unwilling to die attitude. And you know, I think both of these companies, Uber, Airbnb, and Lyft, and and others that I, I talk about in the upstarts, have demonstrated it again and again. And this was, you know, and this was Airbnb's, you know, formative year. Um, after they left Y Combinator, they started to take off, and it, it, they, but they had to stick it out for about fifteen months before that happened. Yeah, and you talk about your own experience with Airbnb. It sounds like they really kind of started to win you over to this idea that they're trying to build a community and make the world a better place. At the Airbnb Open in Paris 2015, what happened there? Yeah, well, I should say I'm not completely won over. I hope okay. I hope <laughs> that I uh, that I maintain my uh, you know appropriate journalistic skepticism. Uh, you know, I I think it can be great. Um, I've I stayed in an Airbnb in New York recently and I had a great time and the host was there and it was it was relatively cheap and I was in Bed Stuy which is a great neighborhood that no hotels exist there right. so you can you can have great experiences. Um, and I'll get to the Airbnb open in a second. I, but I do, there is a different conversation to have about whether these things are hurting some of our residential communities. Yeah. But anyway, so the Airbnb open is this event they have once a year that has like the spirit of a, you know, Christian revivalist meeting, like host, (laughs) host, host come and like, you know, the founders of the company are rock stars and they get speakers and they have Cirque du Soleil and... (laughs) It's amazing, and there's a spirit of camaraderie. And at the Airbnb Open in Paris that I went to, that was when the Paris attacks happened. Yeah, and you know, the community definitely kind of coalesced. the The company was checking on all the attendees, and I was staying at a Paris place where the where the host was absent. And it's funny because that might be an example of the Airbnb, but the bad Airbnb. Mm-hmm. He clearly didn't live there, but it's a pl- beautiful place near the Eiffel Tower. Should that be going? The question is, should that be going to Parisians who live there uh, full time, perhaps? But my point was that after this event, you know, they call. He called. He, you know, he was putting yeah. himself out. He wanted to know what he could do. He was concerned for our welfare. You might get that kind of concern from a hotel. I'm not saying that you won't, but there was something about the community that week that I determined was real. That wasn't just kind of corporate speak. Yeah, and Uber has had probably more PR problems than Airbnb. Most notably was the dinner when they were whining and dining reporters, and then one of the execs suggested that they might retaliate against reporters that wrote stories that they didn't like. Um, Are Uber and Travis getting better at managing their public image now? 
I, I think definitely so. The asterisk is that, you know, we are now coming off a couple of weeks where they really bungled uh, their their navigation of the Trump executive order on immigration. So there is yeah. still growth <laughs> there <laughs> that could be had. But yeah, this was a company and you can excuse it by saying that they were a very fast growing company and, you know, they they needed to mature. But, you know, I think that's it's that's letting them off the hook, um, you know. All, all the problems in these companies were apparent to the early investors. You know, mm-hmm. the ones that passed said Uber looks, you know, that's a great idea, but like, what happens when somebody dies, right? Or in, in Airbnb's case, what, yeah, what happens when you have somebody uh, who gets carbon monoxide poisoning? And, and right. so they knew all this stuff was, was coming, um, and yet they they handled it poorly. Um, you know, there were there were deaths uh, on the Uber platform where you know the company early on just tried to kind of wash its hands of it. You know, this particular instance uh, where, you know, there was an outcry over the, the remarks at a, at a dinner, you know, you, I get into, into the book a little bit about what was said and what was not said. But, you know, being a, uh, an executive at a company with, that's very high profile requires a certain discipline. It's funny, mm-hmm. as journalists, we kind of hate that discipline because <laughs> they don't say anything real. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the executive in question, you know, had a momentary lapse. They're better now. Yeah. Uh, almost frustratingly so because they're more disciplined. Um, and yet uh, I think, you know, because they are, you know, what it, it's not just though their PR posture uh, that has matured. The brand also stems from the fact that they, they have been and maybe had to be ruthless in a lot of cities. Mm-hmm. So they would come into places in Europe and South America with kind of guns blazing. And yeah. that also is something that didn't serve them well with regulators and then uh, with their public reputation. Two of the hardest one lessons for Uber happened overseas when they had two big gambles, um, one that didn't pay off, one that sort of paid off in the end. Um, talk about Uber's experience in Europe and China. Right. Um, the, these are, yeah, these are, this is, this is evidence of like Uber pursuing its glo- global domination plans. Uh, China, some people may be familiar with its efforts there. It spent, you know, billions of dollars in 2015 and 2016 trying to compete against a local upstart called Didi. And, um, you know, no American internet companies have really succeeded in right. China. There, There's plenty of problems uh, from government uh, intervention to just the kind of local favoritism of a, of, a mm-hmm. cha- of a local champion. And, you know, but Travis, you know, again, going back to his character, you know, had, had his eye on having a global network, refused to say no. Eventually they did withdraw it was not a complete loss. They have 17% of Didi's business, um, and so you know, it, you know, so so that 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 was a little bit of a defeat for Uber. And then shifting over to Europe, their their presence in Europe, um, it's just not what we know of as Uber X here. Right. In a lot of places, they just failed in their effort to get a kind of ride sharing. Anybody can drive their car. Uh, service going. And so in places like London and in Paris and in parts of Germany, in Spain, um, you know, th- these are professional cabbies, which, you know, the, the, right. it's more expensive. It's still back to the old model, yeah, I guess. It's, for, right. It's, they've yeah. replaced one system with another. They're not, yeah. the cars aren't yellow <laughs> and you have apps. They're, it's better. You, you don't have to pay with a credit card. You can, you know, pay via your app. Um, but it limits the amount of drivers, yeah. and it's a more expensive option. So they've, yeah. they've got work to do on the regulatory battle in Europe. Why didn't the typical Uber method of coming in, winning over the customer, and getting the customer to fight for you work in Europe? That's a great question. I think um, I think it, it, it should have worked. Um, you know, I, the, the ingredients were all there. And people in Europe do do love the service. It is measurably better than what they had. Um, and with this, certain cities are different. Uh, London had a mini cab industry mm-hmm. that performed some of the same benefit. But, you know, you had to call um, at the beginning. You had to call or go into an office to book it. Um, the difference is, I think, that um, it, the difference is, is in the government, that the, that the lawmakers are simply less receptive or less accountable to you know, to the people that were using these services, and okay. listened a little bit more to the powerful taxi industries mm. who were staunchly opposed. Okay, and uh, and so they resisted change. They effectively resist resisted change. In the U.S., 
um, and maybe it's just structural. I think in a lot of American cities, there were, it was a fragmented. You had you could have a handful of big taxi fleets. Um, they all hated each other, and so they never really spoke jointly. Yeah. Uh, and so as a result, their political power was muted. Um, I think in, in Europe, they had they were big taxi unions. The fleets were more integrated, so you would have one or two powerful executives who controlled it. And then and then I think simply the the, the lawmakers, you know. We're, we're just less accountable. Mm-hmm. We talked about Lyft, but you dedicate a whole chapter in the book to the also-rans along the way, which I would not include Lyft in that. Um, who were they, and what didn't they have that Airbnb and Uber did have? Yeah, and that, that was what I sort of set out to explore. And I think it's interesting in the context of this critique of when we say that Uber and Airbnb were ruthless in pursuing their goals— you got. You have to go back and look at these what I call the non-starters. And I list the. You know there were a couple it profiled in the chapter: uh, Cabulous, Taxi Magic, uh, uh, Couch Surfing, which is very much like like Airbnb. Zimride was a predecessor to Lyft. Um, there are a couple more. And you, it's it's too simple to just say they were too early. Mm-hmm. In some cases they were, but they could have they could have taken advantage of of the same technologies that Uber eventually did. You know, one thing, one one problem they had is that they worked from inside the industry. So, and and now I'm talking okay. about the taxi guys. So, Taxi Magic and Cabulous tried to do Uber with yellow cabs, and and for a number of reasons that didn't work. Um, you know, primarily, you know, if a taxi driver took a ride and they were driving to pick up the passenger, and then they saw somebody by the side of the road <laughs> hailing them with a suitcase, and they're yeah. like, "That's a lucrative fare." They just <laughs> dropped the app uh, passenger and veered over. <laughs> Um, and, and then I think simply they weren't ruthless enough. You know, they mm-hmm. looked at the law and they made a calculated bet that it wouldn't change. And I think, you know, couch surfing, very idealistic company, preceded Airbnb, registered as a nonprofit. So all the idealism that Airbnb has about changing the world and, you know, and being open and all that. They're smart enough to know that you register as a as a corporation. Yeah. Right. They are a money making <laughs> entity. Whereas Couchsurfing had some nutty ideas around, you know, employees would just travel the world and and uh, and and then you know and and they tried to change their nonprofit status and it took years and by that time Airbnb had kind of clobbered yeah. them. So yeah, I think it's like when we say that these other that the upstarts are kind of too ruthless or that they expanded, you know. Uh, you know, they broke laws and they demolished industries. That's true. But we, you know, but we can also say, like, I use Uber and I use Airbnb and I like them. And I think they've (laughs) done great things for the city of Los Angeles and the city of San Francisco. And, you know, if, if, if they didn't have, if the CEOs hadn't had that sort of killer mentality, then they would have been in the in the non-starters chapter. Well, yeah. So taking this more broadly, I mean, you're a guy who's covered hundreds if not thousands of startups over your career as a journalist in tech, um, what would you say separates the survivors from the also rants? It's clearly it's not just an idea. It's not just about being first. What is it? I mean, there's so many elements, and I think the the kind of killer mentality that we just talked about is one. The being a cockroach and surviving <laughs> the the desert of rejection, or as I as we say in the book, the trough of sorrow, <laughs> is definitely another one. Being having the right people around you, like the you know, hopefully in this book is also an illustration of what you know great venture capital uh, is because there you know there's an investor named Bill Gurley who was looking for Uber and was and visited Taxi Magic and Cabulous and some of these other companies uh, because he had a thesis of how this could work and you know so I think he's one of Travis's mentors and I think having the right people around you with a, who share your idealism and your vision but also are ruthless enough to achieve your goals is very important and I think it's yeah. why we see a kind of cluster of innovation in Silicon Valley that has you know other cities have had found it tough to replicate because you need those people around you having access to capital because both of these businesses were almost an arms race in terms of who could raise the most money. Um, that's an ingredient. 
And I think, and the last thing I'll say is sort of like a willingness to learn and to keep mm -hmm. growing, you know, because the Travis who runs Uber today is very different from the Travis who ran it in 2014. I think that's the same for Brian Chesky of Airbnb. It's, it's like the eagerness to learn and to surround yourself with good people and to kind of be humble at the moments where you have to be humble. Mm -hmm. Both of these companies have made headlines by battling and often winning against state and local governments. I'd be curious to hear how you see them playing out with the Trump presidency, especially with Kalanick, who he was, I believe, on Trump's Council of Economic Advisors right. and then resigned over the immigration issue. Can we expect some kind of a death match between these two <laughs> <laughs> egos? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's a good question and a topical one right now, particularly in Silicon Valley. I mean, I think, you know, most literally, neither of these companies have very, very big f agendas with the federal government. Mm -hmm. As you say, they're regulated on the city and state level. Um, but there are caveats. I think Uber, you know, will have an agenda as it pertains to self-driving cars, um, certification, um, you know, testing, and it can use certainly use the help of uh, the Department of Transportation and the president. And I think that's why Travis was on that board to begin mm -hmm. with. But he's the CEO of a San Francisco business in the bluest state in the country, <laughs> and his employees and his customers let him know that with the Delete Uber campaign. And as you say, he dropped out. So, um, you know, I think... I think Uber's challenges are still local, but it'll be interesting to watch. Airbnb is funny because, you know, the president is the most well-known hotelier yeah. in the in the world. And, uh, you know, that would, would be a conflict of interest if President Trump were to go after Airbnb. Yeah. And yet he doesn't seem to care much for a perceived conflict of interest. So <laughs> I think Airbnb has a little risk that uh, the president could get on his Twitter bully pulpit. Mm -hmm. Um you know, it also doesn't really have much in the way of kind of a federal agenda. I know it talks to the federal government. Um, it's hard for me to imagine, you know, what what it could achieve there. Um, you know, and I, I don't think like you could even see federal legislation about Airbnb because it really is city by city, almost neighborhood by neighborhood as mm -hmm. to whether people even want this or, or how to put appropriate limits on it. So, Airbnb has, you know, I think less of an agenda, but maybe a little more of a risk because I know that, you know, Trump has said in the past that he does not want Airbnb in his, on his own properties. <laughs> well, since we're talking about the regulatory aspect and kind of looking ahead, I want to go back to kind of the elephant in the room for Uber driverless. Mm -hmm. What is their entry into automated vehicles going to look like? Are they going to be making capital investments on their own buying these cars? Uh, how it's interesting. So I tell the story in the book. I mean, they, you know, Google invested in Uber. Yeah. And Google has been working on self-driving cars for 10 years. And I think Uber th suspected that they would just be part of that, you know, that they're a Google company and, you know, uh, Google would give it the cards and they would work together. And it became clear uh, that Google had its own vision for this and that they weren't going to include Uber. And so Travis started making pretty big bets starting in 2015. And you know they bought a driverless truck company. They've hired a lot of people from Carnegie Mellon University and elsewhere. And they're they have they own cars and they're testing them in Pittsburgh and some other mm -hmm. places. So. We don't know yet. Like, do they do they own the fleet? Uh, they they have some automobile partners like Audi. Um, do they work with those companies? Um, you know, if, do, perhaps Google or GM. You know, also make driverless cars, and and maybe Uber brings those into its network. I mm. think it's probably too early yeah. to see what it looks like. Although I have to say, it's it's an interesting existential dilemma for Uber because yeah. if we do get to a point where there are driverless cars, like. Those are cheaper than a car with a driver, and right. the whole business is turned upside down. So to me, that'll that'll sort of be interesting uh, if if and when Uber goes public to see how people evaluate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, every time I get in an Uber, which is on a daily basis, I have this conversation with the Uber driver. I say, how long are you, how far out are you counting on this job? And what do they say? Do they think it's coming? Yeah. They're very aware that it's coming, but they kind of blow it off as, oh, I'm just doing this for a few months. It's a temporary gig and so forth. So It's hard for we'll me to see. imagine that it's around the corner. 
I, I was in an Uber yeah. driverless truck and we went onto the highway and he pressed the button and it was driving by itself. But I have to say his hands were hovering over the steering <laughs> wheel in case anything went wrong. So it seems like, you know, maybe they're not that confident in it right now. <laughs> well, before we go, I want to talk about uh, Amazon's kind of adventures in sci-fi. Um, you were the author, of course, of the terrific Amazon biography, uh, The Everything Store. Amazon is branching out with brick-and-mortar stores, Amazon Go, where you just kind of grab and go. There's no checkout. Uh, they're investing in all this drone technology, even patenting this imposing blimp warehouse where I guess they would supply these drones. Is all of this a little too sci-fi, or might some of these gambles pay off for Amazon? Oh, good question. Um I mean, it is okay. Yeah, there. It's it's a little fanciful. There is there's like, um, I I call it kind of innovation porn, uh, <laughs> but there's a belief at Amazon, and I, I have a memo in that book from Jeff Bezos about the the memo is about why people tend to dislike big companies, and his you know his thesis in the memo is that you know if they're um, you know, like a Walmart, if they're putting smaller, more sympathetic competitors out of business, if they're distant companies, you know, people tend to dislike them. And but his caveat is, if you can be seen as an innovative company, well, then people give you a little bit of a pass, you know, they're enraptured by the by the innovation. So I think some of these things are are meant to counter, or at least maybe distract from some of the Oh, impact that Amazon is having. You know, that said, I don't want to say they're not real because Amazon is an inventive company. And um, I, I think they are working on stores, you know, with a lot of automation. I think, you know, they probably have a conviction that that's the future and that these can be profitable and great for customers. Frankly, I, I, I don't find the time spent waiting on a checkout line <laughs> to be that useful. So it could be it could be interesting. The blimp thing Maybe Ben. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I saw that patent. Maybe in five years we'll be doing this again, and I'll be going. (laughs) You know what? I was wrong. There are blimps in the sky with uh, Amazon (laughs) stuff, but that it seems far fetched to me that that is that that is real. I can just see him out of revenge, you know, parking his gigantic blimp over your house so you live in perpetual darkness if you write a bad article or something. Yeah. Well, they didn't love that book all that much. Really? The drones might be attacking. Well, what did uh, the folks at Airbnb and Uber think about this book? Oh, yeah, good question. Well, I, you know, I, as a journalist, you always want to be in the what I would call the tough but fair category. Yeah. And so I don't necessarily know how the founders and the CEOs personally felt about it. In fact, I don't. it just came out. Uh, and so I would guess that maybe some of them haven't even read it because, as okay. we know, they've been consumed with the, you know, lots of political yeah. stuff. But, you know, the, the folks that have read it, have, you know, said, yes, you know, you told the story well, and it was tough, but it was fair. And that's, that's kind of what you want to hear. Well, I thought it was a really interesting read. Again, it's called The Upstarts, How Uber, Airbnb, and the Killer Companies of the New Silicon Valley are Changing the World. Brad Stone, thanks so much for sitting down with me. Thank you, Ben. I enjoyed it. Thanks again to Brad Stone for joining me on the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, then you can order his book, The Upstarts, How Uber, Airbnb, and the Killer Companies of the New Silicon Valley Are Changing the World on Amazon. Or you can download the audio version for free through a special trial offer just for our listeners at audibletrial.com slash kickassnews. You can read Brad Stone's articles at Bloomberg.com or at brad stone.com. You can subscribe to his podcast, Decrypted, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow him on Twitter at, at @bradstone. Be sure to subscribe to Kickass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey. It only takes five minutes at podsurvey.com/kick. You can visit Kickass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at, at @kickassnewspod and be sure to recommend Kickass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com/kickassnews or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. 
For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.